scattered children pray together, we say, amen and amen. Well, again, good morning. Uh, Happy Palm Sunday. Uh, It is so good that we can meet in this way. And, you know, as we uh, just prepare to shift into the message, I I just really want to express my my deep, deep appreciation uh, for, for what the handful of folks you can see here on the stage who've already been up here this morning are doing and, and what our, our, our crew to, to make all of this possible for you to worship with us is doing. And, and most of you know at least the faces and names of the people behind me, and I want you to find a way, at least where you are, to praise God, give thanks for their service today. Uh, if you know their email, if you know how to track them down on Facebook, just let them know how much you appreciate what they're doing because they're doing a fantastic job and they're giving up time of worship with their family on Sunday morning in order to lead us. And, and we've got Steve and Rick and Alex and Skip and Vera, they're back there too. And, and I am just, guys, I'm so grateful for all that all of you are doing to keep our church seeking God's face, even in, uh, even in this unusual time. And, and, uh, and it's good. But today is Palm Sunday, and this is the time to get into God's Word. So I hope that you have a Bible available to you somewhere. If not, you can hunt one down quickly. I want you to meet me in your Bible this morning in the Gospel of John chapter 12. I want you to meet me in John chapter 12, where we find the story of Palm Sunday, also often called by believers in Jesus Christ the triumphal entry. Now, this is a story that's actually recorded in all four Gospels. And not everything Jesus did is in all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but, but this one is, and, and each has their own sort of unique perspective. You know the old analogy of if you had four people standing on, on opposite street corners and they witnessed the same accident, the same incident, they would have four slightly different perspectives on exactly what went down and, and how it happened and, and what the upshot of it all was. And that's, that's sort of the sense here. God in His grace is giving us not just one account, but He gives us multiple angles into what Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry, was all about. And As I prayed about it and thought about it, the Lord led me to John's, and I'll explain why as we move through the message this morning, why this one I think is the appropriate one for us as a church family and beyond to be in today. So I'm in John chapter 12. I'm going to begin reading in verse 12. I'm going to read through verse 19, where this is what the Bible says. It says, on the next day, this would have been a Sunday, the large crowd who had come to the feast. Now, they had come to Jerusalem. That's what the context shows us. And the feast they had come for was the annual celebration, the week-long celebration of Passover, one of the, the high, truly high and holy days in, in, uh, in Jewish uh, worship, in, in, in Israel's history. So we're going to understand that, that Jerusalem is at this moment in time filled with pilgrims from all over the land who've gathered together, maybe a million or more, who knows how many are there. But it says, when the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, well, they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, and they began to shout, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, Your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. 
So the people who were with him when he had called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify about him. For this reason also the people went, and they met him because they heard that he had performed this sign. And the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you were not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. In the opening line of one of the most memorable and frankly one of the most impactful sermons I, ever, I have ever heard, sticks with me 15 years later even to this day, Bible teacher Steve Farrar quoted a Puritan pastor by the name of John Flavel, who some now almost 1,400 years ago declared that, quote, some providences of God, like Hebrew letters, are best understood backwards. Some providences of God, like Hebrew letters, are best understood backwards. Because, you see, unlike English, in which we all know you read across the page from left to right, in Hebrew, both ancient and and still today, Hebrew reads from right to left, backwards to our way of thinking as you move across the page. And and in that particular sermon, what, what Steve Farrar, quoting John Flavel, went on to say what the point that he was making is that in life, in all of our lives and in most of our situations. There are many times that things only truly make sense when we view them from the vantage point of completion. After it's all said and done, after everything has been worked out, then we can look back, we can look backwards, as it were, to see what we learned or what was accomplished through it. And frankly, the longer I live and the more the Bible I study, the more convinced I am of the truth of that statement. I'm not sure that hindsight is always 2020, but I am sure, and I think you'd agree with me when I say that, that hindsight is always clearer to us, what was going on, how it came about, why it was happening, what it perhaps produced, than we ever are able to grasp in the moment. And so today, I believe that, that if there's anything in common whatsoever between the ancient story of what we call Palm Sunday and our own present coronavirus moment in time, if there's anything those two events have in common, I believe that would be it, that they are events, one of which does and the other of which will make most sense to us when we see them in the rearview mirror. When we look back on them, they are providences of God, that is, situations, circumstances, which God orchestrated that are or that will be best understood backwards. And I want us all to keep that in mind as we begin, as I said this morning, our our annual observance of of Holy Week, probably the most unusual Holy Week any of us have ever observed. But, But as we begin today to walk together as believers in Jesus Christ through what is without question the most pivotal week in all of human history, the most significant week in the earthly life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And and as we do so, as we walk through, today begin walking through this week together that will culminate, of course, next Sunday, as I prayed about it and thought about it and sought insight on it, I realized that we could continue to do that through the, the lens of this current sort of sudden series of messages we've been in the last few Sundays, this going viral theme, this this idea of of how we can magnify Jesus Christ in uncertain moments. I think that the events of Holy Week fit into that theme very well because in the three messages that I'm going to share with you this week, this morning for Palm Sunday, the end of the week for Good Friday, next Sunday for, for the Resurrection Day, 
I really believe that each of these messages has a viral message of its own. Each of these three occasions, there is a viral message to be found in them that that you and I, flowing through the things that Jesus Christ did on each of those occasions, that you and I can take to the world. And this morning's message is the title of the sermon. The viral message that we have here in Palm Sunday that we're going to spend the next little while unpacking together is simply this, the King has come. The viral message of Palm Sunday that, that we need to take to heart, that we can share with others is that the king, in fact, has come. And to explain what that means and what difference it makes and what relevance it has to our own moment in time, there are, as always, three things I want you to see in the story. Three things I want to direct your attention to as we walk through it together. The first of which is this, that John's account of the triumphal entry, John's account of what we call Palm Sunday, begins by showing us people with, number one, a desperate hunger. People at the celebration who possessed a desperate hunger. Because, you see, to to fully appreciate the nature of this scene, we have to remember, or maybe some of us have to be introduced to the fact that at this particular point in time, the life of Jesus, uh, the Palm Sunday event, that the nation of Israel, the, the people of Israel, have been awaiting a promised king, a promised Messiah for centuries, for 15 centuries, for 20 centuries. You could argue that, that even further and back, that, that there was an understanding among the people of God that there is a, a king who has been promised, who's coming to save us. And, and with that knowledge, a, a, a 20 century perhaps longing and an expectation, when you then think about that in the context of now this three-and-a-half-year ministry of Jesus that's been unfolding before their very eyes, the things they're seeing him do, the things they're hearing him say, the word that's being passed around him, we need to understand that expectation for this king's arrival was at an all-time high. People were beginning to wonder, to think, to draw the conclusion, could this be the guy? Now, until this particular moment... Until Palm Sunday, Jesus had always resisted. He had always pushed back hard on any open recognition, declaration that he might, in fact, be the king. If people started saying that, he'd go, no, shh, not yet. The time has not yet come. Uh, He didn't want to be acclaimed and recognized in that way. But what we see here in John chapter 12 is... Here he not only permits such recognition, he actually invites it. And he invites it through the the otherwise ordinary act of, if you look in your Bible at verse 14, of finding a young donkey, taking a seat upon it, and riding into town. Now I say that is an otherwise ordinary act because on any other day in the land of Israel, some dude getting on a donkey and riding into town would have been no cause for anybody's attention whatsoever. That's just one of the ways people got around. But, but that's not the case here because, again, remembering Israel's 20-century-long uh, uh, cry, their, their, their expectation of a king, and, and now having watched Jesus do the things he's done for the past three and a half years, and, and possessing these, these, this knowledge and these longings in their heart. Well, what verse 15 informs us is that on this particular occasion, the fact that Jesus did it was, was a familiar 
fulfilled a familiar Old Testament messianic promise. It says again in verse 14, Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. And, and in that line, in that cry, what the people are doing is they're quoting the prophet Zechariah. Pastor Greg read the verse for us earlier, Zechariah 9, 9 and 10, 500 years earlier. Zechariah gave a prophecy. He made a promise that when Messiah comes, this is how he's going to ride into town. So you see what's happening here, what's brewing in this particular moment. And, and what the crowd of people who come for Passover do is they simply do the math. They, they take ancient messianic promise plus, plus surprising current event, and they come to the conclusion, they come up with the sum of a massive moment of prophetic fulfillment. There are people standing around thinking, we're seeing the word of God fulfilled before our very eyes. The king has come. He's here, and so what do they do? Well, John says, as believers should do, they started to sing. In verse 13, says they sang Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Now, where'd they get a line like that? From the Psalms? The messianic lines of Psalm 118. They're just singing God's word to Jesus, singing it to the Lord, believing they've in the, they're in this prophetic moment. And you know what? I'd have done the same thing if I'd been there. And, and you would have done it too. But then something strange. Because as I said, all four Gospels record the triumphal entry. But, but in Luke's account, and you don't need to turn to Luke's account. You can read it later on your own if you wish. But in Luke's account of Palm Sunday, he tells us something that John's Gospel omits. I don't know why John leaves it out, but Luke includes it and it's worth mentioning at this point. Because what Luke tells us about this incredible, maybe even borderline frenzied scene of, of, of worship and, and acclamation is that as the crowd is singing and the people are cheering, Jesus, Luke says, is crying. It says on this moment, Jesus wept, probably quietly, but visibly nonetheless, that they're singing and, and he's weeping. Now, primarily, Luke tells us that Jesus, Jesus wept at his own triumphal entry because because he knew that as a nation, ultimately, Israel would reject him as Messiah. And, and that a number of years later, as did in fact come to pass in 70 AD, Jerusalem would be destroyed and, and wiped out. He knew that for those who, who didn't believe that, that difficult, destructive days were ahead. But I think also, and, and this may be conjecture on my part, but I think it's a safe assumption to make. I think that in the moment, Jesus also wept because he, he recognized that the people's view of deliverance was incomplete. They were saying the right thing, but, but again, they were in the moment. They didn't have the benefit of reading from right to left, of, of putting all the pieces together just yet. Because you see, here's the thing, that cry, Hosanna, that cry, Hosanna, it, 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 it means save us now. Save us, save us now. Now, as, as Christians, we sing that. We sang it already this morning. And, and I'm, I'm just like most other believers. For most of my life, I had no idea what that meant. I just knew it was a church word, right? Hosanna. It, it, it probably means something good. Well, what it literally means is save us now. And, and of course, a, a statement like that, it, they, they didn't invent this. It's, 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 a, it's a word that the ancient Israelites were familiar with. It could, it could be interpreted in a lot of different ways, several different contexts, but 
Here's the thing. When you take that cry, as they look upon Jesus, hailing him as king and saying, save us now, and you combine that with what they started doing, it said, waving palm branches in the air. Now, that just seems kind of like a cool thing. They just grab whatever they could, right? Kind of, kind of a neat little display, uh, 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 some sort of celebration, just using what they had available to them. No, 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 it was more than that. Because in those days, and really still today, the, the palm branch is a nationalistic symbol of the Jews, of Israel. And to take palm branches and wave them in the air was was really little different, maybe no different, than a group of us standing on a street corner on the 4th of July waving American flags. We're celebrating national pride. And so when you realize they're saying, save us now, but they're doing it in a, a nationalistic sort of way, what it means is that their hunger here in this particular moment, let's just call a spade a spade, their hunger here in this, this particular moment was more political than it was spiritual. It was more national than it was religious. What they wanted deliverance from in the moment, and I'm not saying this is wrong because, because what was happening to them was wrong, is they wanted deliverance from Roman oppression. They wanted the occupation and the terrorization of their people that had gone on for decades to stop. And that, that wasn't wrong, but it was dangerous. And again, I think this is part of the reason why Jesus wept, because Jesus understood If that's what I do right now, the people will be content to leave it there. They won't want any more because they'll have the relief in the moment, the physical relief that they need. But that was what they were hungering for, desperately hungering for. But what did Jesus know? Jesus knew, I came for something more. I came to do something more. And that's why the next thing we need to note in this, uh, in this story, the story of Palm Sunday, is simply acknowledge openly the fact that, that what happened here, what the people were doing here, was, was happening from a, a limited point of view. That's the second thing I want you to see here. First of all, a desperate hunger, but a hunger being expressed from a limited point of view. I've said a couple times that that each of the Gospels has their own kind of unique angle or take on Palm Sunday. Well, well, it really distinguishes John's Gospel account of Palm Sunday from Matthew, Mark's, and Luke's is, is that his primary focus is on the crowd. Now, we're told what Jesus did, and that's, I mean, that's the center of the activity, but John writes to us from the perspective of those who were watching and observing and experiencing it, and that makes sense because John was there. As a disciple of Jesus, he would have been among those, probably crying, Hosanna, the king, finally he's letting us say it, right? We can can say it openly and freely. And, And so he, being in the crowd, understood what was happening through their eyes. And so since that is his focus here, if we're going to be dutiful readers of the biblical text, we need to follow where he's trying to lead us. We need to look for what he's trying to show us. Because what But doing that, what looking at the crowd closely, and it is here in the text, I'll show you in just a moment, what it reveals is not everybody saw Jesus the same way. They were at the same event, they were probably singing the same songs, waving the same branches, but they didn't all see it the same way. For instance, among them were those that I would would term the persuaded. They're presented to us in verse 17. It says, the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb. Now, I'm not going to retell that whole story. But if you go back a chapter to John 11, Jesus performs one of his most spectacular miracles of all. He raises his friend Lazarus from the dead, and it causes a stir. 
I mean, that gets people's attention. And it says those people who were there with him, probably just a couple of days before, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, well, what did they do? Well, they just kept talking about him. They continued to testify about him. If you saw somebody raised from the dead, you'd be talking about it two days later too. And it says they're just talking it up and they're spreading the word. And you know how word travels, word of mouth travels. It's all over the place. And, and so there, as Jesus is coming into town, those who were with him continue to do it. What I want you to see about these people is that as far as they could possibly go at that time, that point in time, they are convinced Jesus is the guy, right? We're all in with whatever he is all about, the persuaded. But there's also a segment of the crowd, I would guess perhaps maybe a greater segment of the crowd who I'd term the curious. Look at verse 18. For this reason, now when we see that in the Bible, we should say, for what reason? So sitting at home, say, for what reason? reason? There you go. I really miss that, you know, just being able to do that here together. But for this reason, we say, for what reason? Well, for the re- for reason of the fact that those who saw Lazarus raised from the dead can't stop talking about it. Because this word is spreading all over town of what Jesus just did. For that reason, also, the people went and met him. Now we say, what people? We say, what people? Well, what people is, you jump back up to verse 12, the large crowd who'd come to the feast. When they heard Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, and they heard what he'd been up to, they're the ones who took the branches and went out to meet him and began singing this messianic, kingly song. And they went and met him. Why? They didn't see the sign, but it says they heard that he'd performed the sign. And so they're the curious. These are people who, having heard what Jesus has been up to, they want more information. They want to know what's going on. And then, of course, as always, in every major event in Jesus' earthly ministry, there are those who are easily considered the opposition. Verse 19, the Pharisees, who said to one another, uh, uh, the, the translation is English is very clunky. Basically, they're all standing around in a circle looking at each other saying, well, we're not doing any good here. We're not making any headway here. Look, the whole world is chasing after him. Uh Uh-oh, there goes our power. They are, as I thought about it this week, they're they're that little red sliver of Husker fans at Kinnick Stadium on game day, right? Right? They're they're vastly outnumbered, but but they're here. They want to settle a score, right? Well, for our purposes today, we're going to do what any good Hawk fan should do with any Husker fan on game day at Kinnick Stadium. We're going to ignore them. We're going to ignore them. I'm going to be apologizing to at least one of my friends after this sermon for that. But even so... Because, again, the Pharisees are doing what the Pharisees are going to do. And and they get a lot more screen time as the rest of the week and the story unfolds. But again, what we want to do, what we need to do, is we need to follow John's lead into the crowd. Because I believe, I have come to believe that that is where perhaps the biggest practical lesson for us in this story today is found. So, follow me as I try to follow the crowd. Think it through. At this moment in time, who is the crowd convinced that Jesus is? They are convinced that he is the, begins with K, ends with ing, the king. Right? They are convinced that he's the promised king. Based on that cry of Hosanna, what do they want Jesus to do? They want Jesus to save us. When do they want him to do it? Now! You're the king, save us, save us now. 
And in that moment, none of them would have been surprised. In fact, I think almost all of them would have been thrilled if Jesus had chosen to fulfill it in that way by just leading them right into town to Herod's palace, right into Herod's throne room and seizing his throne, getting rid of him because he was a half-breed and he was a puppet of Rome and he was an oppressor of the people. And, And then from that place, then they could start the long march to Rome because Jesus could get the job done and throw off Caesar and end the oppression, and restore freedom, and national sovereignty, and, and pride. And, and while I mean no needless disrespect toward the crowd, do you realize what would have happened if Jesus had honored that request? That's what they wanted. A request that they were presenting from a point of limited clarity, a sliver of the whole story, They would have gotten relief without redemption. Immediate relief without lasting redemption. Israel would be free, but humanity would still be chained and shackled in sin. Because the saving work that Jesus came to do required that a cross precede the crown. He said it himself in John 3, 17, that God, his Father, did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Not just the crowd, not just one nation, not just one sliver of humanity. No, Jesus came so that the world might be saved through him. They had a limited sliver. Jesus knew the big picture. He understood what he had come to do. And, and, and so one of the things I think that, that we who know Jesus Christ can take from that scene today, and, I, and forgive me if I'm repeating, I may have said this last week, but it's the lesson that I keep coming back to that God is driving home into my heart over and over and over again for our particular moment of time, which is this, that some of us, myself included, need to change the way we're praying. And I realize that may be a presumptuous statement, but I think that it's an accurate one. Because what are most of us praying right now? Understandably so. Save us, Lord. Make it stop. Save us. Save us now. Make this horrible, unwelcome, devastating season stop. Why? So we can get back to normal. What God has been saying to my heart for the last two weeks is that that may be the worst thing, the worst possible outcome is if when this is all over, life goes back to normal. Listen, I want it over too, and I don't want anybody to misunderstand what I'm saying about the virus and the devastation. I want no more virus. I want no more deaths. I have friends who have been infected with it, and, 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 and acquaintances, even people. You know them as well, perhaps. And, and I want it all to stop, and I don't want any more isolation and quarantine and sheltering in place. I want it all over uh, as well too. But what if we get relief without transformation? What if all we get is relief? The the problem stops, but God doesn't have his way in my heart. Because I have limited clarity. You have limited clarity. We have limited clarity. And I think we need to stop jumping to conclusions of what's going to happen and how it's going to work and what God is saying and all this. I mean, and go to him. And say, Lord, for as long as it lasts, whether you miraculously end it tomorrow or it goes to June or whatever, 
What is it you want to do in this season in me? See, if he gives us relief, but we don't get transformation, we don't even know the opportunities that will be missed for families to to reconcile and heal. Maybe just to get to know each other again because they're stuck in the same house day after day and we're so busy running so many directions that we're just existing together and we're not really loving each other. If, If we get relief without transformation, we get relief without surrender, what opportunities are you going to miss that you have right now? As we talked about last Sunday, to draw nearer to the Lord, just to spend more time with Him, to go deeper in His Word, to seize this moment when most of the world is existing in fearful uncertainty to point someone to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. What will we miss simply by getting relief? If we haven't said, Lord, my viewpoint is limited. My understanding is small. Here's what I'm really suggesting. Perhaps instead of praying, save us, save us now. I mean, it's okay to pray that. But I think we ought to do so under the heading of the way Jesus taught us to pray. Your kingdom come. Your will be done here on earth, in our nation, in our city, in our church, in our home, in my heart, as you have designed it in heaven. Your will be done is the way to pray. Because the last thing that I want to show you here, and the last thing we need to see in this story, is the fact that that when it all was said and done, when they were able to finally assess and appraise and remember what happened here on Palm Sunday, reading from right to left, looking at it backwards. I want you to see that, according to verse 16, the followers of Jesus made a marvelous discovery. There was a desperate hunger. For a time, they had a limited view, but when all was said and done, they made a marvelous discovery. You know, Jesus' disciples take a lot of heat, and sometimes it's warranted for not understanding what Jesus was up to, for missing the point, for being, at times, dull of hearing, and, and quick to jump to conclusions. And, and, and sometimes that's warranted, and sometimes it's just a convenient punching bag. But this morning, I think that, that we can, at least I take real comfort from the fact that just like Hebrew letters, reading from right to left, even the disciples, even the 11 guys, faithful guys who knew Jesus best, were with them night and day, did not fully grasp what they were in the middle of until it was over. And you think if anybody would have understood what Jesus wanted, it was them, because he kept telling them about it but they weren't getting it. What does verse 16 say? It says, these things, Jesus riding into town, Zechariah's prophecy on the Passover, what it was leading to, these things his disciples did not understand at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written of him. And then they remembered that they had actually done these things to him. You see, what what the disciples didn't understand at the moment was that instead of a coronation, this was act one of a a week-long drama, the most dramatic drama the world's ever seen, the most riveting drama that anyone has or ever will know, a drama that would would encompass, among other things, the cleansing of the temple, a, a shocking betrayal, a last supper, Midnight prayers in the garden, arrest, torture, crucifixion, death, 
burial, and as we'll celebrate next Sunday, a victorious resurrection. All of which, sitting at home, say all of which. (laughs) All of which were necessary in God's plan of redemption. All of which was necessary so that I could have eternal life. That you could have eternal life. That the whole world can have, if they wanted, eternal life too. It was after the fact, reading right to left, that they connected the dots and they came to embrace that King Jesus came to do all of it. To do all of it. And that if he'd done anything less, it would have left us without hope. They would have gotten relief. We would have no hope. And I think that's a marvelous discovery for them and for us to know the whole story. You know, as I thought about that this week, it occurred to me, you know, don't, don't we all have stories like that in our life too? Maybe it's the story of how we came to know Jesus Christ as our Savior. Stories where we can look back now, reading from right to left, looking at them backwards and say, I never would have chosen it. <laughs> I don't ever want to go through it again. I wouldn't wish it on an enemy, much less a a friend. But wow, what the Lord taught me through it. Wow, how the Lord met me in that place. Wow, how I saw him on display. Now that I wouldn't trade for anything. It may take a moment, but you've got stories like that, and so do I. So I was thinking about that, I was reminded of one of my mentors, many of you from Maranatha know him too, Dave Glock, who, uh, who was my Bible college professor, became a friend. Um, many of you have heard him preach, sat under his teaching, and he died, as, 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 as you know, last year. And when we attended his, his memorial service, a lot of things were said. It was an amazing service. And you have to forgive me, I don't remember the exact quote, but as one of his fellow professors, one of his dear friends got up to eulogize him, I said something that really stuck with me. You know, because Dave was in failing health his last several years. He was in and out of the hospital. Even when he was here, you could see it was a struggle until he began to preach. And then it was like he was, you know, young all over again. But, and he'd been without his wife. She had died seven or eight years earlier. And, um, and what this colleague, one of my other professors, said is, is that at some point in those final few months, Dave said something to the effect of, you know, he said, I feel sorry for people who die in an instant, (laughs) die in their sleep or from a heart attack. And in a moment, their life is over and it's gone. And he said, why? He said, because they don't get to experience the consoling presence of Jesus that I have been experiencing in these final days of my life. Jesus has met with me here in ways that he's, despite all my teaching and learning, he's never met with me before. I'm not sure I share that sentiment, but I understand it. I wouldn't have chosen it. I I, I wouldn't want to do it again. But oh, how Jesus has made himself known. How much more I love him. How much more I realize he loves me. And I think when we put stories like that, whether it's his or, or hopefully stories like that in your life as well, When we put testimonies like that next to a story in the Bible like this, I don't know about you, but I have every reason to believe God's got another marvelous plan at work right now. 
But he's up to some stuff that we can't see. And again, I don't mean in any way to take what's happening in our world lightly. I don't mean to diminish the, the death and the suffering in any way whatsoever. So do not misunderstand what I'm saying. But some of God's providences, like Hebrew letters, are really only truly understood when we read them backwards. And I think a day is going to come when we say, God did some stuff. And maybe I don't see what he did in the world. But I also didn't miss what he was doing in me. And that's a choice you have to make. That's a, a decision I have to make. And I, be, I believe that it begins with surrendering our timetable and our expectations and our demands to him and let him unfold what he's doing in his time because he's still king and he's going to get what he wants done. That's why today's big idea for us from the story of Palm Sunday is to remember that we must walk through our days in step with Jesus. We must walk through every day in step with Jesus, not lagging behind sluggishly or in fear, not venturing out, out ahead presumptuously, oh, I know this is what God's up to and this is what the world needs to know and if everybody get there, no. Just walk through each day in step with Jesus. After all, if a donkey and a cross were part of the plan of redemption, <laughs> who knows what he wants to do with the seemingly ordinary mundane stuff of your life today. Father, we know that by implication, being called a follower of Jesus means we're called to walk with Jesus. And Father, I, as much as anyone else, use that language frequently, daily, following Jesus, walking with Jesus. But Father, I fear that in my life, far too often, I talk about it a whole lot more than I actually do it. Father, I think one of the great things I think that you could do. I don't know what you're up to in our world, in our nation, in the church. I certainly don't know what you're doing in the hearts of, of all of us who are gathered in this way for worship today. Father, but, but I think I, in my life, I, I want relief more than I want transformation. I want completion more than I want to learn through the process. And, and Lord, we all want this season to be over. How we wish we could all be together in this place a week from today to celebrate the resurrection as we always have. But for some reason right now, your answer is no. Father, I pray that because you're still king, Jesus is still Lord, that we would embrace the no. That we would embrace Jesus, the, the one who is at this time saying, not yet. And Father, we'd choose to walk through the rest of this day, this holy week, and each day with you. Father, do not let us come through this season unchanged. Make us more like Jesus. More loving, more patient, more compassionate. More bold. More devoted. More appreciative. More committed to walking with you. Father, as always, take the things of truth that have been spoken here today and seal them in our hearts and move them to our feet. And let everything else slip away. So we leave looking to Jesus alone in whose name we pray. Amen.